0: Dealmaker Insights, a podcast brought to you by Reed
1: Smith's corporate and finance lawyers from around the globe. In this podcast series, we explore the various legal and financial issues impacting your deals. Should you have any questions on any of the content through this series, please contact our speakers. Hi, I'm Justin Hunter. I'm an associate in the Reed Smith Transactional Tax Group, and with me is... Hi, I'm Rishi Jain. I'm also an associate with the Transactional Tax Group. And together, we're going to be talking about the taxation of cryptocurrency. I want to preface that we're not going to get into the weeds of what cryptocurrency is, but we are going to focus on, I think, what I would say is three distinct issues involving cryptocurrency and the resulting tax consequences. The first one is how is cryptocurrency or what is it, I guess, characterized for tax purposes, U.S. federal income tax purposes, that is. And the differences between what we call proof of work versus proof of stake and how, how proof of work and proof of stake are taxed. And then finally, we're going to look at our, a major point, uh, crypto lending and how a lender of cryptocurrency will be taxed under U.S. federal income tax principles. To begin, I think we need to look at the different pieces of guidance that the IRS has issued on cryptocurrency. There are three, basically, as in there's very little guidance out there, um, which kind of makes cryptocurrency it's the Wild West of taxation, is the way I would look at it. There's uh, a lot of open issues. The big one that the IRS, I think they thought they answered back in 2014 or did the best they could was they issued a notice. 2014 21, in which they concluded that virtual currency, they called it, is property for US federal income tax principles. Now, I'm going I'm to bring in Rishi here to talk about that a bit, but essentially that seems obvious to most people that it's property, but what does that distinguish from? I think Rishi, I don't know, I can loop, I'm looping you in here, but they're basically distinguishing, in my view, from money, like straight up cash and a, r- a regular currency.
0: Yep, I, and I would totally agree. And before I get into notice 2014-21, let's be, let's be clear. As with many things in the federal government, the economy and the markets move much faster. And sometimes the government is a little slow on the uptake to determine regulatory constraints for these new movements. So I think recognizing that fact, is why we have such limited guidance at this current juncture. Getting back to notice 2014-21, Justin's exactly right. The big takeaway is that for U.S. federal income tax purposes, virtual currency is treated as specifically tangible personal property. And and what that means is that for, for all intents and purposes, if I'm selling a coin of Bitcoin or a coin of Ethereum, it's, treated as if I actually possessed a coin of Bitcoin and sold it to someone else for an amount of money. And when we think about that process, that transaction, which tangible personal property is sold, it's a very basic concept under Section 1001. Your gain, if you hold the currency and you decide to sell it, is going to be your amount realized over the basis that you had in that coin. And the basis in that coin is essentially going to be the fair market value of it at the time you bought it in the first place. I agree with Federici. I, I view it as like a barter. It's a
1: weird. It's like it's like we're going back in time to when we didn't have currency, and you would trade a mule for you know uh, a sword or whatever. You know what I mean? And that's kind of how cryptocurrency is getting treated here, where. If you do, if you make a transfer, you pay for, uh, for something in cryptocurrency, you pay in Bitcoin or whatever it is, you recognize gain on the Bitcoin that you transferred to someone else as payment for a service or a good, which, you know, you wouldn't really think about that in the concept of, of, of when you're we're typically paying using credit cards or, I mean, basically all credit cards now, but sometimes cash and you just pay that amount. It's, a, yep. it's $5. All right, I'm paying $5, Right. Right. If you paid $5 in Bitcoin, if you bought that Bitcoin for a dollar, you'd have $4 of gain. You're recognizing that's taxable. Right. Which I find it to be it's a very interesting way to look at it because we just think we're just doing, if you're doing a straight up transfer for a, a service or a good, you just
0: think I'm paying five Bitcoin and that's it. I'm done with it. The transaction. Right. And speaking of services, because this has become a big thing, I think there was, was it Odell Beckham Jr. that wanted to take his salary in, in Bitcoin? Yeah compensation. When it was $69,000. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> not, the, not
1: the 22 it's currently trading yet.
0: <laughs> yes, this, this podcast is also very appropriate considering the crash that's occurred in the last couple of days. Compensation for U.S. federal income tax purposes when it's paid via a currency is recognized at the fair market value at the time of receipt. So if you were paid in Bitcoin and Bitcoin is valued at $100 on the day you are paid, that is your income inclusion for purposes of federal taxation. And that doesn't matter whether it was worth 50 the day before or it's worth 20 the day after, but what matters is that the moment you got paid, what was the value of that coin at the time? And I think that's an important concept because it, given the volatility of, of Bitcoin, you don't know what your impact is before and after. And it's one of the reasons that Odell Beckham Jr. got himself into a little hot water with getting paid in Bitcoin and suddenly finding himself wanting as far as the salary that <laughs> he, he originally had negotiated for.
1: I also want to point out that um, people consistently think of, well, it's called cryptocurrency. Why is it not treated as a currency? You know, And the simple answer to that is, um, at least prior, I think, to 2021, is that it was not any other country's national currency, not their, you know, coin and paper. That has now changed. Uh, El Salvador, I think last year, made Bitcoin one of their national currencies. Now, it's technically speaking, because it is a virtual currency, it is not their paper and coin. So you could still argue that it shouldn't be treated as currency for U.S. federal income tax purposes, flesh principles. But you can certainly see a new argument now that maybe it's maybe because someone else has done this, has made it a national currency, that it should be treated as currency. And the reason why this matters, though, is because property like a house, you know, for example, is treated differently under the tax code compared to currency. Different provisions affect it. And the reason why, and so if you think, well, okay, so we've answered the question like the IRS did when they said, we're treating this as property. It actually, it, funny enough, it gets even more in depth than that because then it becomes, well, not only doing we, now we know it's not cash. It's not currency. We're going to treat it as those are the big three cash currency and property. But then there's basically a subsection of property where it's either, is it a commodity or is it a security and the IRS Um, has not answered that question in the three pieces of
0: guidance that they've issued. Speaking of, Justin, before we get to that next subject on commodity versus security, I'd be remiss if I didn't just mention that the other pieces of guidance that Justin's referring to is a series of FEQs that expanded on 2014-21 that were issued in 2019, and you can find them on the IRS website. They're not binding. Don't forget to mention, they're not binding. They're FAQs That's right. that you can use
1: for your, for your personal, on your personal return. And then the IRS can turn around, I guess, and say that they're not binding. And you, you know, you don't,
0: you, what if you have a position that they don't like, they don't have to follow. Yeah. Don't, don't quote the IRS when yes. you go through those FAQs. And the other big one is, is a revenue ruling that was also issued in 2019.
1: I believe dash 24, I believe is what it is. Thank
0: you, sir. And it's, Without going into too much detail because it was sort of widely panned as not being a great ruling, I do want to note that in situations where there is a hard fork of cryptocurrency and you receive currency as a result, like uh, in a, a few years ago, there was, Bitcoin had hard forked into Bitcoin cash and some people received new Bitcoin cash depending on their holdings of Bitcoin. That would have been included as an ascension to wealth, and therefore taxable for U.S. federal. I income. like
1: ascension. I think it's accession, but I do like ascension better.
0: Thank you, thank you. You make me feel real good, Justin. You're welcome. <laughs> I do
1: prefer ascension. I would like to ascend.
0: Yes, that's um,
1: right. Yeah, I. You know, it's 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 certainly interesting that that revenue ruling, and I'll just briefly touch on it, but that. Uh, that was the IRS is definitely giving. They were really giving, really, really trying hard to try to analyze. And I think these these transactions, by the way, that the cryptocurrency do, they're they're complicated. And basically they were trying to analyze well, what happens when you have a hard fork in, in, in these types of transactions. A, a hard fork can be two different types, which you could have a non-contentious classic example of a non-contentious hard fork was Ethereum handful of years ago, I believe, where they had a, a hack on their blockchain and the people lost a bunch of coins. And so their non-contentious hard fork, which is basically, I would view this in simple terms, as if you went from Windows 10 to Windows 11, kind of a concept where everyone's fine with, all right, we're going on to Windows 11, sounds good. I don't know if it'll, you know, what'll happen in the future, but at least I know, you know, they're making some upgrades to the system. This is kind of how I would view a non-contentious hard fork. It's just a massive software upgrade. And in this case, what they did was actually like a, I think it was like a time revert where they basically made a fork in the road where now all the coins that the new fork is effectively as if the hack had never occurred. That's a non-contentious hard fork. And a contentious hard fork is if you have basically a bunch of developers who can't agree as to what's happening with the, um, the server, the protocol, however you want to describe it. And so they break off in pieces, they break off in an actual fork. You have one chain that goes another direction. The other chain goes the other, right? So now it's a true fork, I would say. And the IRS was trying to explain what would happen if you, as a result of going through a hard fork, you received um, new coins and they called it an airdrop. That's not exactly what happens in real life, right? We, a very rare type of, that would be very rare if that occurred. And so. I would just—I just want people to understand that it's not exactly—it's it, guidance, but it's guidance that is going to be relied on in a very, very rare circumstance, which means it, which means it's probably not as helpful. Which is why the New York State Bar Association has basically thanked the IRS for trying and then saying, "Please, not necessarily a do-over, but please, you know, revise it to make it more like so people can rely can figure out how to how to rely on the guidance."
0: Yeah, was that was that part of their? new sweeping recommendations that were released earlier this year? No,
1: that was actually uh, when it came out in 2020. They spent a lot of time on hard forks because I think they realized that the IRS was just, the IRS is just, they're trying to, they're trying to keep up with the changing, with all the changing stuff, but they just, it's just a lot. It's just a lot.
0: It's a lot, you know? And so I
1: understand where the IRS is coming from. They're making an effort. They're just not quite there yet. And that's going to happen.
0: Yep. But as Justin had said, there is, Very limited guidance from the IRS regarding the taxation of virtual currency. And as everyone knows, in the last few years, there's been a a huge push in decentralization and a whole economy built on virtual currency. And I'm looking at you, NFTs. And as a result, the, the taxation of virtual currency and these economies need to be addressed, which is why. One of the great things that has happened recently is the New York State Bar Association has gotten together and provided sweeping recommendations on the taxation of virtual currency that will hopefully trickle its way down into the IRS and into Congress and, and find its way into law at some point.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree, Rishi.
0: And I think now what we should do is we should focus
1: on if this is property, if cryptocurrency is property, then what kind of property is it? And I think we look at we're analyzing between two two separate two separate things. Uh, one is a commodity, and one is a security. Yep. And this is not this is not really. I don't think this is really an easy discussion. I do think that the analysis that of looking at what we describe as the ordinary financial meaning. Um, because the term commodity, funny enough, in the U.S. Federal Income Tax, in the code, the U.S. Internal Revenue Code, is not defined. And so I think you have to look at, you know, well, what is the ordinary financial meaning of the item we're looking at? You know, and the IRS is in, in the 70s took a look at this, basically. And I like what the IRS did. they basically deferred. Okay, we don't know. We, we don't know what the ordinary financial meaning of an item is. So we're going to go look and we're going to go the Commodity Futures Trading Commission is who we're basically going to refer to for items in which we don't know what the answer is. And I don't know about you, Rishi, I actually thought that was probably the smart move, especially when it came, comes to things like cryptocurrency, where I think there's a lot of issues with
0: people defining what it is. Absolutely. You got to um, leave it to the experts.
1: Yeah, and and in 2020, the, the CFTC, um, as they call it, did provide that all virtual currency is a commodity, all of it. Yep. Which I find interesting because in the tax code, there are certain certain sections in the tax code where they actually limit the definition of a commodity, whether if it's actively traded
0: or whether it's on the commodities exchange to begin with, right? Yes. Yes, exactly.
1: And so, you know, I think that I think that's probably a very good place to start especially looking at it from where from what another entity in the government is doing and cuz they're the ones that you know the CFTC is someone who's actively looking at commodities yeah so it makes sense that they would have an idea of what a cryptocurrency should be the reason why a security might be a tougher argument for what it is for a cryptocurrency is is because securities typically give you additional rights that I don't think a cryptocurrency would for example If I own Bitcoin, I don't own anything in addition to what that Bitcoin is. For example, if I own stock, uh, equity, let's say in a major corporation, not only do I own the stock itself, but I also have the rights to dividends, to I have liquidation rights, voting rights to the corporations, presuming it's common stock.
0: Not to mention the value of that stock is not only dependent on what the market pays for it, but also dependent on the on the operations of the company that the ownership represents. Yep,
1: yeah, that's
0: absolutely right. And you don't have that situation with a Bitcoin or, or with a barrel of oil. It just is what it is. And two parties decide what that value is based on the market, based on desire, based on supply and demand. And that's the way it is.
1: Yes. Yeah. And we can also conclude that it's in certain most circumstances, I think not debt. And debt, you could define as an unqualified promise to pay, you know, a, a sum certain on a specified date with fixed interest. That's basically, it's, that's what debt is. And in general, most circumstances, I don't think cryptocurrency can be debt. It can be an item as debt, meaning that it's basically if you're lending cryptocurrency, right? It's the item that is that you have to repay, let's say, but it's not debt itself. And I think the only argument to that as it, as it possibly being debt is, I think, the stable coins, potentially, which the stable coins are like, you know, they're, they're pegged to the U.S. dollar, for example. But in general, I, I think it makes the most sense. I think it makes the most sense to treat it as a commodity if we're going to say this is property and not a currency, for example. But I, I can definitely see the debate between the two of them. I mean i don't know do you have any do you have any additional thoughts or do you or do you agree that it's probably the better answer is to treat it as as a
0: commodity oh i absolutely think it's it's a it's a commodity and i will say that as you've mentioned justin that that decision to treat virtual currency as a commodity does have sweeping tax implications across the code for example i mean an easy one is the wash sale rules the wash sale rules really apply to securities only so if you're if you're buying and selling virtual currencies within a 30 day period, you can take those losses and and offset them against those gains because the wash sale rules only apply mm-hmm. to security.
1: And that's true. Yeah, they're not. Yeah. And that that's a huge benefit if you think about it From for if you're a cryptocurrency trader is that you could well now in particular. Right. I mean, it'd really be beneficial now if you're sitting on a ton of losses because <laughs> right. of the crypto crash, you could sell now. Turn around and buy, like you could, you had, let's say you had 10 Bitcoin. You could sell your Bitcoin, take your losses, buy the Bitcoin now for the same price effectively. Yep. And then if the Bitcoin goes up in price, I mean, you know, you're making
0: out. Whereas those wash sale ru- rules for securities prevent that benefit. Right. Assuming the IRS takes this position, which there is by no means a- an assertion there, but it seems appropriate given given how Bitcoin is, has been traditionally treated since its inception. Yes. Yes. So,
1: so next I think we should look at how the notice and the FAQ have also taken into account proof of work, which without getting into detail, proof of work is how Bitcoin functions and how many of the other cryptocurrencies function, which is basically in order to verify the transactions on the blockchain are accurate. You have a node, one of the computers, basically, or several, I suppose, has to, I think, in simple terms, answer a very complicated puzzle or mathematical question or whatever it is. And to the extent they get the question correct, they then can verify the transactions on the blockchain and they get a reward for and the reward is always in the, you know, it's like if it was Bitcoin, they get Bitcoin, for example. The notice and the FAQs have both, you know, given answers on this and have said that this this would be this should be these these rewards should be taxable as just gross income. Section sixty one, right there, you're getting taxed on it. You've done work. This is like you know whatever you want to describe as service income, whatever it is, it's taxable. The reason why this matters today is because cryptocurrency world is changing, and it's changing because. Proof of work requires a huge amount of energy and people have decided that it's more efficient to use proof of stake. And proof of stake is effectively and you decide you want to, you as an owner of a certain coin and this coin uses proof of stake, you stake your, your coins for the right to basically validate transactions and you and validate transactions in the blockchain. And it's a random selection. Theoretically, the more stakes you coin, the better chance you have of being selected. But then if you are selected, then you do, you validate transactions. And typically speaking, you would get just most often. So I've heard, and I think you're going to agree with me on this Rishi, you, you only collect the transaction fees, every bit, every, every cryptocurrency transaction has a transaction fee, but they don't, but in proof of stake, they don't frequently have staking rewards. Meaning that you don't get coins in addition to your transaction fees. And so for sure I think everyone agrees that if that for whatever transaction fee you collect, that should be includable. The bigger issue under proof of stake is, well, if you're getting proof of stake and it's because of your ownership that you are you've been selected. Whereas under proof of work, theoretically, anybody could answer the question correctly and do the work and get the coins. You don't have to be an owner of Bitcoin to do that. Under proof of stake, you would have to. Yeah. You would have to be an owner. And so the question is, is it dilutive in the same vein as a stock dividend? Whereas you're getting just more pieces of the pie versus, you know, your pie went from, you know, eight slices to 12. And so now you're basically getting, instead of your two slices, you know, you had one-fourth of the pie, you're now having, you're still getting one total fourth of the pie, you just have three slices, right? right? And so the question is, do you exclude that income, the staking reward potentially, because it's dilutive? And I think the answer there is harder, it's harder to answer. I don't view it quite the same as a stock dividend on the basis that if it's a stock dividend, then everybody who owns the stock is getting a stock dividend. If it's a staking reward, only the person who has been selected to validate the transactions is getting so-called the the dividend or the you know the reward for, for doing it. And if that's the case, I don't think you're, 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 it's a non-pro rata right dividend, which would mean that in this case you'd have to have some sort of accession to wealth. But I definitely think the answer I definitely think the answer isn't clear. But to me, it seems more likely it should be includable, like like you would like a proof of work.
0: Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. I, I think and that is a a very debated question. I think you'll if you just a quick Google search takes you to numerous articles, both of which fall on either end of the spectrum of whether it should be excludable or includable in income. And so I think until we see some movement uh, from the IRS or from Congress that that sort of issue is going to be hotly contested and likely subject of, of a lot of litigation as the years progress.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely agree. And we're seeing litigation already in there because I know there's a case that's currently ongoing and I think Tennessee that's, that's getting into that issue. So finally, I think we're going to talk about crypto lending. And crypto lending has been a major talking point, not only I think in the tax community, but I think just, I think just any, anywhere in the crypto space, it's a big issue. And there is currently no direct guidance On whether a lender of cryptocurrency should realize any gain or loss in connection with making a loan of this of the cryptocurrency, and typically speaking, you'd be thinking, "Well, why does that make any sense if I'm loaning something?" You know, most people would consider you loan cash, right? You don't you don't think about it in any other way other than just lending. If you're you know buying a car and they're you know buying a house and the bank's lending you money to buy the house, right? But there are um, transactions in which, for example, you'd lend lend securities as a classic example for shorting shorting stock. Uh, A bank lends you stock and then you short the stock, meaning you sell it, even though you don't technically own it. And you're banking on the fact that the price drops and then when you have to fulfill the contract, you buy the stock at a lower price, you transfer the stock back to the bank, and you take whatever gains theoretically you've got from that because you bought at a lower price. So there's a code section in the Internal Revenue Code that protects the bank in this case from recognizing gain or loss when they lend that stock to stock or security to you as an you know to you as the the borrower, right? What's important about that is that that section, Section 1058. Uh, is limited to securities, which as we talked before, if this is a commodity, then section 1058 does not cover cryptocurrency. And the reason why that matters is because if you are lending cryptocurrency and you're not under the protection of section 1058, well then theoretically, if you lend any, crypto, any Bitcoin or Ethereum or ether or whatever it is, you're going to recognize gain when you do that, lend when you have the lending transaction. Now, I don't know if people have been reporting it that way, probably because they think it'd be crazy to have that be the case, but that's realistically what the tax consequences could be. Now, the big debate is, is it appropriate to have Section 1058 be the point or be the code section that covers cryptocurrency, I think, Rishi? And I know there's a debate over whether it should be under Section 1001, under some non-recognition regulation or provision, or whether it's uh, Section 1058.
0: Yep. And and I think there's even um, proposed legislation out, out right now that tends to want to answer the question in favor of inclusion under 1058 but again it's it's a hotly debated subject and and one that i don't know especially with this sort of schismed congress is ever going to get resolved in any sort of timely fashion i think
1: that's right and i think the big issue is is that prior to section 1058 coming out there was a the way the way these types of transactions work where you do this, where you lend these securities is that they would be treated as like a deferred exchange. So you would lend and then someone would basically promise you, I'm going to return to you, I shorted, let's say, GE stock. I'm going to return to you that identical stock, however many days down the road, whatever it is. And if it's a short, remember, it's a short time period, right? And then once you get the stock, once the lender gets the stock back, that, that closes the transaction. That's your That's your exchange, right? When Section 1058 came out, they changed the timing of it. The timing became, now you have an immediate exchange. You don't have a deferred exchange. And the immediate exchange is you'd have the contractual right or obligation, let's say, to return the identical security. The reason why that makes a difference is because you can imagine a situation in which you would lend securities prior to Section 1058. And then let's say the stock price plummeted in value. So then what happens is the stock you get back is worth a lot less than it, when the stock you lended before. So you, you see the, there's a risk of gain or loss there that's involved in it, right? And so theoretically, Congress fixed that by making the exchange of the time of the obligation, right? They make the exchange of the time you have the contract rather than, rather than ruin the time the, the stock is returned. And on top of that, the IRS issued regulations in there to try and, and, and solve these problems as well by, for example, um, having a five-day rule where the lender could call back the stock within five days and you had to return that stock regardless of what happened. Right? More complicated than crypto. Don't have those rules. And in particular, these types of loans are term loans. They're not, they're not, they're not these callback loans, basically. So if they're six months long, well, then you're, that's it. It's a term loan six months. You got to wait six months. So in general, they're going to have to figure out the appropriate way to time this. Is it, is it appropriate to do it the way section 208 is set up to where the exchange happens on the date that you sign the contract that you're going to, you're going to lend or is it on a deferred exchange? And if it is a deferred exchange, that's fine. I think most, I think the New York state bar association took the view that that's what, that's the better approach. But then you're gonna need some regulations that, uh, so that help with the timing of this. Yep. So that you don't have an issue where where the lender is bearing the risk of loss, of gain or loss. Yep. I think that also includes Rishi like the payments. Like, you know, the stock. If you if I lent stock, for example, and there was a dividend on the stock, right? That dividend is supposed to flow back to the lender. Right. In the same vein you think of this, you get you get an airdrop of coins. Most most time these airdrops, by the way, are, have very little value. But to the extent that, you know, if you want to set limitations and say, okay, if the value of the airdrop exceeds a certain threshold, you have to return that to the lender. You know, maybe that's appropriate too. But it's just one of those situations where you have to fit, you're trying to fit cryptocurrency, which is like a square peg, into lending a security under section 1058, which is around a round hole.
0: Yep. Agree. Agree.
1: I think, Rishi, I think this uh, closes our discussion on taxation or cryptocurrency. We welcome any listeners to send us questions by email. We'll hope that you listen to these podcasts in the future.
0: Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, again, as Justin said, you know, let us know if you've got any feedback, questions, comments. More than happy to continue what is going to be a very lengthy discussion over the coming days, weeks, months, and, and years with regards to cryptocurrency taxation. So thanks again. Talk to you soon.
1: Dealmaker Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali MacAdam. For more information about Reed Smith's corporate and financial industry practices, please email dealmakerinsights at Readsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at LLP on LinkedIn,